This reminds me of a dream I had once. Are you sure it was a dream? Well, I'm sure it's not brain science. This is rocket surgery. It's Alice in Wonderland 2010. Look at that. He snuck it up on us. <laughs> the Incomparable, number 470, July 2019. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable. I'm your host, Jason Snell, and in this episode, we're talking about uh, Tim Burton's film, Alice in Wonderland, from 2010. It apparently grossed like a billion dollars, and uh, who are you people? And I, I guess I'm going to say I'm sorry that you were taken in and you gave your money to see this movie, because the purpose of rocket surgery is basically for us to tear a movie apart, and I'm looking forward to tearing this movie apart. It made a billion dollars. Those people who made it can just cry, cry, cry into their money, I suppose. Joining me to talk about Alice in Wonderland 2010 are the following wonderful people. Monty Ashley. Hello. I feel like I just woke up from a strange dream. Yes. You're not Monty. Well, not the Monty we're looking for, probably. Probably there's another Monty. Let's see who else we have here. Oh, it's Shannon Sutterth. Hello. Hi. I hope we can all keep our tempers through all of this. <laughs> and also here is an invisible floating hat. No, wait, it's Steve Lutz. Hello. Hello. You remind me of some funny boys I met in a dream. <laughs> is it a dream? It is a dream. Not a very good one. Curiouser and curiouser, he said. <laughs> so, yeah, they made a movie of Alice in Wonderland. Okay. All right, 2010. I want to take you back to 2010 because as I'm watching this movie, please do. I was wondering to myself as I watched the first even like 15 minutes of this movie, was this the period in time when Hollywood realized that they could sell 3D movie tickets for twice the price of 2D movie tickets? And <laughs> listener, it was. <laughs> Yeah. How how could you tell, Jason? Never has more care been put into getting objects placed clearly in the foreground of shots than in right. Alice in Wonderland 2010. And yet, no paddle ball scene. If you're going to have a 3D movie, I want a paddle ball shooting right at my eyes every Or yo-yo tricks. An elephant yeah. creature that flaps all the way up to the front of the point of view and then back into yeah. the screen. All right. Well, how about if we have a character whose sole purpose is to generate thrown objects directly at the screen? That's what good. do you think That'll about that? Work. That'll work. Uh, is it a? Is there any work of literature we could we could plumb for this where somebody <laughs> falls through a deep hole? Because mm. that would be great for three D. I think. Let's see what's what's in the public domain where we won't get sued by somebody's estate for completely destroying the source material. Hmm. Now, ideally, <laughs> we could trade on the goodwill people have for this property while also making it very clear we think the original is stupid and boring <laughs> and we know how to make it cool. And hence the bipolarism of this project. You found two poles on this project? Because I could barely find one. Uh, they just CGI'd his face onto two things. <laughs> no, there, there were things about this movie that um, I could say I definitely can appreciate the intent. Um, there were things that to make money. here and there I enjoyed besides that. But between the script from Linda Wolverton, who did the original Disney Beauty and the Beast... I mean, she, she, she's capable. She, she can write a really good story with a really great independent heroine updating Alice for the 21st century. Um, not well, that was she, she wasn't... forced on that project to contend with auteur Tim Burton? Hmm. Um, well, she apparently had been working on this for a long time. And then Tim Burton got attached to it as part of his two-picture two deal with Disney. Mm -hmm. And... Burton apparently just never saw the emotional connection that 
this book has that and and it needs one the movie needs an emotional connection i'm like dude anger is an emotion in uh, there's a there's a line and i think it's the wikipedia article about this movie so forgive me for quoting wikipedia here but i had to read it like five times to make sure that i understood what i was reading because it said tim burton decided to do a movie of alice in wonderland because he felt no particular connection with the source material i was like what duh dude you're a grown man (laughs) and it's a movie about a girl and he's like well i want (laughs) to really mess up a movie and just do all my crazy tim burton stuff with it so what's something i don't care about oh alice in wonderland i don't care all about that let's do that it's like well obviously so batman was his first project of that type <laughs> but somebody forced him to actually pretend like he was making a batman movie for the first oh, one boy. i'm a grown man and i have an emotional connection with alice in wonderland mm. i have martin gardner's annotated alice right over there gee it, so do i yeah it's good <laughs> right i don't have a particularly strong emotional connection with alice in wonderland uh you know the original alice but my wife does and she i i through a clerical error, she watched this movie with me um, under protest. <laughs> you were going to say you made her watch, then you realized how that would make you, you need sound. to immediately fire that cleric. <laughs> I try to give her every chance to look away, um, and this was basically like, "Well, I'm leaving if it displeases me." But she stayed, but was aghast by it because, again, um. she, as somebody who loves this work, she looked at it and said. Um, one was this is not made by somebody who loves this work. It's like we can improve on this classic by doing lots of crazy stuff that I've done in other movies. And the other thing that really struck me about this th- that I just think is hilariously weird is every famous line that somebody knows from Alice mm-hmm. in Wonderland is used in this movie like a Saturday Night Live catchphrase. It's out of context. So it's fan service. Yes. It's an attempt at fan service. And used wrong, too. Like, she says curiouser and curiouser Uh in a way that I guess maybe she remembers saying it. But the line about doing eight impossible things before breakfast is now her father's catchphrase. And that's not how Mm -hmm. it works. And she has to think of all of them in a climactic moment. She has to come up with a list of impossible things before breakfast, uh, before she uh, fights in the action scene in the movie, which is, yeah, it... mm, Mm-hmm. I will say this. Every time I hear the Jabberwock referred to as it's the, the Jabberwocky, yes. it's like having acid poured oh, into the center God. of yeah. my brain. Lauren and I actually, we shot each other a look like, do we hear that right? And I think there's one moment where they, somebody says Jabberwock, but immediately the rest of the movie, it's just Jabberwocky again. Like mm-hmm. Tim Burton doesn't seem to understand that the poem is called Jabberwocky, but the right. the creature is the Jabberwock. The moment when he says Jabberwock is when he is reciting the actual poem oh, Jabberwock. Right. <laughs> the yeah. right. That's the, the quote is the only t- thing that gets it right. And of course, the Jabberwock is not a character in either Alice's Adventures in Wonderland or no. Alice Through the Looking Glass. You might mm-hmm. as well have, I don't know, that guy who stood on his head or <laughs> the alligator or something. It's fanfic. It is so f- fanfic. And, um, uh, the premise, too, um, of this film, for those who are still listening to us talk about this <laughs> film, is Alice goes down the, the rabbit hole and everybody's waiting for her, and she thinks that it's all a dream she had she, that, that when she was a kid. But it's very confusing because that suggests this is a sequel, and yet many elements of it are from Alice in Wonderland. So 
it's mm-hmm. like a sequel to itself. You know, I guess. Well, that's just that's Wonderland for you. Crazy stuff happens again <laughs> I, for something. Now, Jason, <laughs> I, I hate to slow you down already, but in fact, she does not fall into the hole until 13 excruciating minutes into the movie. Yeah. So I, I wanted to say <laughs> I actually liked those 13 minutes the best yes. of everything in the movie. I thought those 13 minutes when this was going to be a an English costume drama about a girl who doesn't want to get married to some doofus who she needs to marry for family <laughs> reasons uh and and uh we're relying just on um mia what is it wasakoska um on her acting as alice i like that part the best because it was not super heightened wacky tim burtony should we just get into a the run through the plot you want, you, kind wanna, of you want to do it steve all right steve's <laughs> gonna steve's so. gonna walk us through the plot this time thank you steve all right why not um <laughs> so we open on a very foggy i think it's london there's a clock so I'm assuming it's supposed to be London. Um, <laughs> and we're presented with one of a very short list of things that I like about this movie, which is the Danny Elfman score, which I think is very nice mm-hmm. and less obviously Danny Elfman carnival funhousey than usual. And he could really have let himself go on this. Like, who would blame him, really? No, he puts in an yeah. effort. I, I I agree. Yeah, I think the Alice theme is is very memorable mm-hmm. and kind of sticks in the head afterwards. It, um, and it's very enjoyable over the menu on the Blu-ray. It's less enjoyable over the movie itself. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, we zoom in on a window in London where uh, Charles um, Kingley, Kingsley. Kingsley is regaling his incredulous business partners with his impossible unheard of idea of setting up trading posts in other countries. I guess it's harder to come up with impossible ideas than uh, than you might think. Well, this is after it breakfast. Like, so. Yes, this is this is post breakfast, <laughs> and uh, he's interrupted by his daughter, young Alice, who appears to be about six in this scene, and she is had this uh, this dream again that she's been having repeatedly about falling down a rabbit hole and meeting a, a blue caterpillar who blows smoke at her and some such. Uh, and um, it's it's a nice enough scene, I guess, um, in which we are. We're immediately told that uh, you know she's already she's already experienced the joys of Wonderland, and mm-hmm. anybody who's familiar with the work knows this already. So uh, th- this puts this movie in the same category as Hook and Christopher Robin, where mm-hmm. we're told the movie you liked definitely happened, but the hero has forgotten it or has PTSD or something. Right. Yeah. And what's interesting here is she she refers to the stuff that she previously experienced and now now perceives as a dream as a nightmare. I mean, she has this same nightmare over and over again, and it terrifies her. So it's it's a little sad, actually. <laughs> um, but we are immediately transported to, t- uh, what is it, 13, 16 years into the future? 13 years after her dream, yeah. 13 years into the future. She's now 19, uh, and we are in a uh, carriage. Uh, Alice and her mother are traveling to some big to-do. Yeah, it's a party. Uh, and it's only revealed to her later that it's actually after she interacts with people and it's very uh, a very peculiar party that yeah. this is actually her engagement party. And she's told by, uh, again, pre I mentioned earlier, a doofus to go meet her in the, you know, over there at the at the I don't know gazebo or whatever the gaze mm-hmm. box and the gaze box, and, right. and he's and he's going to tell her something and then there's going to be turns out there's going to be an audience and because they're he's going to just propose to her because this yeah, is her. there's a, yeah. there's somebody prepared to paint the whole scene and everything mm-hmm. it's mm-hmm. she's getting railroaded here I like this Alice where she rejects the weird 
uh, rules of society, and she questions this ridiculous dressing requirement, and she's all, I wonder if I could fly. The problem is that that Alice makes a terrible protagonist for Alice in Wonderland, where she is supposed to be the normal she represents mm-hmm. normal England dealing with crazy stuff. Right. Yeah. Well, and this is this is part of the problem I have with the entire the, the entire plot line, which is that Alice changes not a whit from beginning to end, and this movie really wants us to see this through line of her character, you know, starting off as kind of this broken creature who doesn't who doesn't remember the joy of being in Wonderland, and as it goes on, she gradually you know recovers her old self. And becomes this big hero, and she never changes at all. There's never any point in the movie in which she appears to have made some sort of epiphany where she's now a hero. And so that whole thing just falls flat. Yeah, there's two places where they're obviously trying to create the parallel within the story, where she's determined to take charge of her dream. This is my dream, and I can make what hap- what I want to happen happen. And well, no, you get hurt, because uh, it's not a dream. And then when she gets back to the real world, you know, turning around and saying, you know, nope, not going to do this. But like you said, there's plenty of evidence in the first few minutes that this is the kind of attitude she would take. I mean, there may be a little hesitation on the audience's part, whether she would accept the proposal or not. But obviously, she's going to run. She's going to go think about it. Um, she's going to go, you know, chase this rabbit she's been seeing. Yeah. yeah. Um, so there, there isn't as much development as the script uh, would like you to think. Yeah, she doesn't seem like she's going to marry him anyway. So the whole experience changing her to someone who says no falls flat. She already says no, yeah. yeah. She's, she's already <laughs> refusing to wear stockings in a corset. She's, she's mocking mm-hmm. the whole concept of traditional dress. I will say one of the three things I genuinely like about this movie is Hamish's snooty, stupid face. Yeah. <laughs> I, I genuinely enjoy the first 10 minutes, um, just like as, as you guys mentioned. I, I, I don't enjoy it sort of grudgingly as better than the rest of the movie. I actually think it's pretty good. I, I think Hamish is, he's perfectly drippy. Yeah. Uh, perhaps literally given his poor digestion. Uh, <laughs> oh. His mother, I think, is yes. wonderfully overbearing. Um, the two obnoxious sisters are great. And then, unfortunately, the rest of the movie happens. But this part, I think, is actually pretty solid. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I agree. I, I like this. I like this part a lot, which is why when that moment comes, she's fleeing already when she goes down the rabbit hole. And right. what a rabbit hole it is! It is oh, not yes. only a super deep 3D rabbit hole that you can uh, was probably unbelievable when you got those glasses on in the movie theater. Why those piano keys are playing right at me, Jason? Yeah, not only are, are you plunging through the hole, but um, in a very artificial way, various objects are flying mm-hmm. past you in either direction. And this was a moment <laughs> where I thought, oh, 3D movie. Right, <laughs> right, right. 2010. Got it. Because we're all in free fall, it all falls the same speed. So things are hovering next to her, mm-hmm. except when they have to fall faster or slower to get in and out of the shot. Yep. Yeah. I mean, she did manage to, like, take a jar off the shelf in the book and then, like, put it back in another shelf. So she wasn't falling that fast. But yeah. (laughs) It's Wonderland, man. Crazy stuff goes on, especially 3D stuff. (laughs) All right. So she lands at the bottom of the the rabbit hole after having many exciting 3D adventures. (laughs) And then we get a very rote version of the whole eat me, drink me thing we've all seen a thousand times before. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I'm not entirely sure why, if they're going to discard the whole rest of the book, they're going to bother to kill five minutes on this same scene. They even have characters narrating over the top of it saying, I... I'm surprised she doesn't remember doing all this before, which kind mm-hmm. of hangs a lamppost on it. Yeah. This yeah. is boring. Hasn't the audience seen this? Yes. <laughs> well, here we go. 
This special rocket surgery episode of The Incomparable is brought to you in part by Pingdom from our friends over at SolarWinds. It is summertime. I always think about rocket surgery episodes in the summer. I love it. Before you set out on a trip, pack your bags and get out of the office and set your email to out of the office. You need something to tell you that everything is running smoothly on your site and more importantly, when it's not. Because computers will betray you. That's why you need Pingdom. Pingdom helps let you know the moment your computers betray you, the moment your website goes down, in whatever way is best for you. And you can customize how you're alerted and who is alerted depending on the severity of an outage. So when you're out of office, you can stay out of the office. Take a vacation with peace of mind while Pingdom is monitoring your website. It's easy to get started. All they need is your URL. They take care of the rest. So go to pingdom.com slash O-O-O right now for a free 14-day trial, no credit card required. Then when you sign up, use the code SNELL at checkout, my last name, and you'll get a cool 30% off your first invoice. I should put on like sunglasses when I say that part of it. Cool, 30%. Anyway, for a limited time only, enter for a chance to win a free out-of-office t-shirt by going to pingdom.com slash O-O-O. This shirt is really funny, so you should check it out, pingdom.com slash O-O-O. Thank you to Pingdom for supporting The Incomparable. Shannon, I don't know if you've got a history playing text adventure games in your deep, dark past. A very long time ago. I I know that Monty and Steve both do. And I just want to say this scene is a text adventure. First off, off, this drink makes you smaller and this little cake (laughs) makes you bigger. Uh, yeah, it's, it's in Zork 2. And and, yeah. and then yeah. literally, like, so she takes, she drinks a little, she gets a little small. Oh, mm-hmm. now I can't get the key. Okay, well, now I'll li- drink a little cake. Now I'll get bigger. It's like, oh, right, I have to get key before mm-hmm. I drink yep. uh, yeah. from the bottle. And then, and then I can you have go to put the satchel the... down so the babble fish doesn't fall into the hole. Exactly. <laughs> so then you can open the dog door and get out. And, yeah. and it goes on a long time. And again, I'm sitting there laughing because I'm thinking, like, I am watching a dramatization. This is Zork the movie at this point. Yeah. yeah. And they have these stupid names. It's like, you know, th- that don't come from the book. That right. You, I had to turn on subtitles at one point because I just couldn't understand Johnny Depp. And then... I could see that they actually had these freaky, stupid names for, you know, the potion and the cake and, you know, yeah, several other things. And, and, and the like, characters, what? too. Like, Elsabeth is the Red Queen and the White Queen's yeah. got some name. The the rabbit is McTwist. Yeah. The caterpillar is named Absalom, Absalom for yeah. some reason. Yeah. I, I'm a little I'm a little better about naming characters something that's not a pejorative like the Red Queen, the White Queen or the caterpillar. But, yeah, to name the cake, you know, Appelkuchen or whatever. It's like, OK, so we're in Germany now. All right. The potion is called the Pischalver. Yes, yeah. of course it is. Yeah. yeah. Yep. You add it to your inventory. Yep. <laughs> so anyway, we we have this whole exciting scene that we've seen many times before. Although I do like the way that she shrinks into her dress as she gets smaller. Mm-hmm. Though the dynamics of which clothes shrink with her mm-hmm. or where her little fingerless gloves go are not at all clear. Yeah, I had the same sort of thoughts I have when somebody turns invisible, which is like if Spider-Man turns invisible but he's got the form-fitting body suit maybe i can see like oh well it's making contact with his skin so it's part of the invisible i started having those thoughts about like so only her under dress shrinks with her like there's is like there's an air gap or some layer of fabric yeah. where it's like no, 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 no. it's supposed to be a garter in contact I don't know. with the skin maybe <laughs> and then know. later it's super stretchy because because it, it goes up her legs but the top part mm-hmm. doesn't get like ridiculously small so yeah. i, I mm. Yeah. Okay. They could have set that up too because they were talking earlier explicitly, not that explicitly, but you know what I mean, about how many layers of clothing she's wearing. Like there was a scene <laughs> about that. 
there's a bit later too where she's hiding in a teapot and uh, the the Hatter takes a, a, a scrap of her previous dress and turns it into a little mini dress and hands it in there. And I thought that was really clever. And they could really have done that throughout every right. time she grew and shrunk. And it could have been kind of this fun running gag, but they didn't. Because they have her naked behind the plants at one point when they're she's with the Red Queen, right? And she's yeah, like, you that's true. Get some curtains down. That made me laugh. I thought that was that actually was pretty good. funny. Give yeah. me some yeah. curtains if you have to. We need to close this giant person. Close so, this giant girl. Yeah, that was, that yes. was good, but they, it was really inconsistent, yeah. Steve, keep talking because I want to complain about what Tweedledee and Tweedledum look like. Okay, we're getting there. Uh, so <laughs> she finally works out the correct, uh, the correct number Order of commands of to type into the parser. <laughs> yep. And she gets through the very small door, and then we are in Burton World, as indicated by the twisted tree that we are immediately presented with. Wonderland! <laughs> now, I liked some of the visuals. Some of the visuals were so spot on that, you know, they drew from the Tenniel um, illustrations, you know, things, the rocking horse fly and the snapdragon fly, you yes. know, things like that, the talking flowers. And I appreciate that the the image in the oraculum of, of, of the, mm-hmm. uh, the fight with... The uh, Jabberwock is very similar. Yeah, that's why I say it's fanfic. That's why I say it's fanfic, because the author of the fanfic saw that in the book and decided, I want Alice to be that character in that drawing, and I'm going to make it happen. Maybe if we toss them these bones, they won't get angry about what we're doing to the rest of this story. (laughs) (laughs) You You know what Wonderland is full of, everybody? What's that? It's full of little creatures that fly right at the camera. Whoa! Right. Everything flies at the camera. Cups. Eggs. Lots of creatures. Lots of Dragonflies. glass popping. 3D glasses. Your 3D glasses will fly right off your face with all the stuff all right. that's in Wonderland. So uh, since we were talking already about the shrinking dress effect, we should point out how CGI filled this film is and how <laughs> uneven the CGI in this film is. Sure. I don't remember the state of the art in 2010, but I feel like it wasn't this bad. I, I mean, I, I think uneven is the right word to use here yeah. because there are, I almost want to say that there are shots, there are aspects of shots that are good. Um, One of the problems that the movie has, I think, is that it's trying to do a bunch of different stuff at once in the same shot. And that's, for me, is when it all starts to fall apart, is like when they've got Helena Bonham Carter later, and she's got her big head on her little body, and then they've got the, like, too tall Alice, and then they've got the normal-sized knight. Well, the most offensive thing to me is the knave who walks Mm -hmm. around like he's Jack Skellington. I mean, he's like like a Harryhausen vintage stop-motion body with Crispin Glover's head. I mean, And when he's on his horse, oh my God, when he gets on his horse, it's even worse. It's it's totally out of step with all of the rest of the animation, and it's just bizarre. And a lot of the little animals and and other doodads that are in here are are very plasticky, I will say. But, but, you know, some of it, I, I think in isolation, some of it is fairly impressive like as weird as big-headed helena bonham carter looks like right i i get what they're doing there and i think they did a pretty good job but then you put her in a scene with other people and then it starts and, and a weird fantasy background and it all starts to break apart and i think, and I think the backgrounds are mostly lovely i mean the, yeah. in spite of mm-hmm. them being somewhat poisoned by the burtonisms of the of this the, movie of won <laughs> oscars for art direction costuming and i get it i get why it would do yeah. that there is a lot of art going into this um you know kind of mess of a movie there is definitely some <laughs> impressive work slapped in with not impressive work it's got the most art design For you might sure. not agree with it like, i i think the red <laughs> queen weight. looks great i just get mad that she's yelling off with their head when that's the 
Duchess's line, and anyway, the Red Queen is from Looking Glass, not... Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Well, she's, a, she's a mix of the Queen of Hearts and the Red Queen from the two different books. And that's been going on since Disney's first animated right. round that they, yeah, smushed the Red Queen and the Queen of Hearts together. And like you said, the Duchess... It's just, and this is on, a guys. Disney movie, so you could argue yeah. that they're... That they're you know, not only trampling on the books, but also trampling on the Disney movie that precedes it. So. And it was, yeah, it was this book, th- this film's fault. This is why all, we're getting all these live action remakes now. Mm-hmm. This was the first one. This should have been the cautionary tale. And yet it made a, it made a, a billion dollars. Billion. Yeah. yeah, I guess. <laughs> so anyway, the reason I bring up the unevenness of the CGI is that we now meet various uh, CGI animals like the dodo, and we've previously seen the white rabbit, but he's here again. We meet the dormouse, and they all look pretty good because they're anthropomorphized animals, and we sort of expect them to be out of out of realism. And then we also meet Tweedledee and Tweedledum, who look Ooh. ridiculous. <laughs> Just immensely fake, nothing like humans of any kind. Sort of like a uh, like a texture was wrapped on, like a low resolution texture was wrapped on a 3D model of like an egg, a featureless egg. Uh, or like the Pillsbury Doughboy or something. I mean, they're just these sort of blobbish things with faces yeah. poorly they're, they're, And they're on. kind of like the illustrations from, from Tennille, but, you know, but worse. Do you remember the show Clutch Cargo? It was a very cheap show that was on, uh, it was from the 50s and it was on the Comedy Channel for a couple of years. Uh, they had a technique of making, it was so, sort of animated, but it would be just like a still picture and then just the mouths would move. Mm-hmm. Shoot the mouths and put them over it's the mouths of the drawings. What Robert Smigel did on uh, Conan O'Brien's show, right? Yeah. Or, yeah. This is what that looks like. It's Mm-hmm. The faces are just stuck on. One of the things that confuses me too is that this is Matt Lucas, who Doctor mm-hmm. Who fans will know is Nardole from uh, from the Peter Capaldi era, and he is a funny-looking, bald-headed fellow, giving the same performance, I think, and giving uh, basically the same performance. And the thing that baffles me though is like, why do you cast a guy who can kind of look like the character <laughs> and have the character yeah. be a three D model? I don't really understand why they would yes. do that. <laughs> He'll go bald for a role. I think he's just bald. Just do that. They could have just taken a shot a shot of his head. They could have wrapped him in green, taken a shot of his head, and then just like stretched it a little bit, and he would have been a yeah. better Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, they could have modified his existing features like they do with Helena Bonham Carter, and it probably would have been yeah. less off putting. Instead, there's the Pillsbury Doughboy in Oshkosh Bagosh. Humpty Dumpty. That's it's like he's why, why are you making an yeah. homage to Humpty Dumpty? You threw you threw that character out of the out of this one. Sure. And the characters of Tweedledee and Tweedledum are canonically correct in that they are constantly arguing with each other, completely useless, and yet we are expected to feel emotions for them by the end of the movie. <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of a problem. There's that's that's the biggest problem I have with this film in general is that there's no heart whatsoever to it. I yeah. mean, you can you can see places where it's trying to make us feel for the characters, but I just I get nothing whatsoever yeah. from any of those those scenes, and it's it's like they just forgot to in, include the parts where we find redeeming qualities to these characters, <laughs> or we <laughs> we find something to like about them. And so when these these story beats hit at the end, like when uh, we're saying goodbye to the Mad Hatter, and we're obviously supposed to be terribly sad about it, it's just like, uh, whatever. Yeah. Once you're trying yeah. to pull the old, oh, Scarecrow, I'll miss you most of all. <laughs> it's like, eh, no, just leave this weirdo behind. It's all, it's okay. Nobody cares. And, the, and the, it, uh, it's a problem, too, in the many, many endless action sequences when 
we might care about what's going on if we cared about any of the characters, but since we don't, it's like watching it's like watching a 3D benchmark for a graphics card That's or right. like a screensaver <laughs> or something. Except that, except the flying toasters had a better fleshed out backstory. It's it's just it's so boring. Mm-hmm. In this section, Alice also repeats over and over again that um, she's not who they're looking for, and she just had a dream, which is the least interesting thing they could have her do because we all know she didn't just have a dream. Yep. And mm-hmm. and yet this goes on for most of the movie until near the very end, she finally realizes oh, it wasn't a dream. We'll get there, but it wasn't a dream at all. But yeah. but she just keeps saying it. It is right. so frustrating that she keeps. Also, by the way, if you've ever wanted to see a cute little CGI animal um, st- viciously stab a monster in the eye in the first of three separate yes, eye stabbings a recurring theme. in this film. Yeah. This is the movie for you, I guess. Yeah. It was like yeah. the first one I was like, oh my God, the mouse just stabbed uh, uh, the Bandersnatch right in the eyeball. That is so, and, and took his eye. It's so Pops gross. Pops it right out like an olive and then carries it around in a sack for the and rest of the movie. it keeps happening. Oh my God, it was terrible. Yeah. So two things. Uh, first, I totally agree about the problem with her saying it's all a dream is it dares the audience to have any emotional investment when the characters don't. Yeah, <laughs> like, exactly. She doesn't care. Why should I? But also uh, <laughs> the Dormouse, what they've done is they decided we need lots of action scenes in this movie because people love action. And they took the Dormouse who was originally sleepy. Right. And that's it. Just sleepy. Constantly asleep. Yes. And swapped in Reapy Cheap from the yes, Voyage of the Dawn exactly. Shredder. <laughs> well, they swapped in almost the whole plot of yeah. Prince Caspian. Let me be clear. I like Reapy Cheap. But... Yeah, Reapy Cheap's great. Didn't need to be the Dormouse <laughs> yeah. mapped on top of it. <laughs> so indeed, uh, Alice spends an inordinate, an, an inordinate amount of time uh, <laughs> saying that it's just a dream. Uh, so she is dragged off to meet the hookah-smoking caterpillar Absalom. Ah, yes. Uh, this film is rated PG for fantasy violence and a smoking caterpillar. That's right. <laughs> uh, voiced by uh, Snape himself. Alan Rickman. Alan, yes. Alan Rickman. Very good in this. He's a, he's really good at sounding contemptuous. They got some very good voice actors, and they only had to come in for like a day or two yeah. And record their stuff, and then they're gone again. So I think Alice is supposed to be our stand-in as we watch this movie, but really it should be Absalom, because he has oh, nothing yeah. but contempt and disgust <laughs> for Alice and everything around also, him. Also, he has his scroll that tells him everything that's going to happen in the story, just like we know mm-hmm. everything that's going to happen. So, sure. Yeah. So, yes, indeed, we meet Absalom, and he asks her a series of questions to get to the bottom of whether she's the real Alice and what he says at the end is not hardly, which I guess is supposed to suggest that he believes she's the real Alice, but it doesn't really make sense when you think about mm-hmm. it. And all this she thing about uh, about are you the Alice is right out of hook when everybody's whining about whether this is the pan or not. Right. Yeah. Time to take another little break. This special episode of The Incomparable, Rocket Surgery, Alice in Wonderland, brought to you by Moo. Moo is an online print and design company specializing in customizable business cards, postcards, stickers, and more for your business. And they're having a semi-annual sale right now, and it's live on moo.com slash relay from July 17th through July 23rd. They have 25% off everything. It excludes shipping and gift cards, but it's the perfect time to reorder and stock up or design something fresh. Moo rarely has such big sales. Don't miss out. Go to moo.com slash relay today to check out Moo's full suite of products, including business cards, postcards, invitations, letterheads, stickers, notebooks, flyers, so you can seamlessly promote yourself and your brand. 
And you can count on Moo's quality. They have special finishes like gold foil. Pretty. New silver foil as well. Raised spot gloss. Letterpress. It's these little touches that make you and your stuff stand out. And if you don't fancy designing your own card, Moo recently rolled out new templates for business cards, which are inspired by their most creative customers. My business cards are Moo cards. They come in six colors. Get it? Yeah. So go to moo.com slash relay. Check it out. Save $25. Moo.com slash relay. Thank you to Moo for supporting the incomparable. So we're presented with the Oraculum, which is, I guess, an illustrated history of Underland, which Alice knows is Wonderland. It's a prophecy or some shit. I don't know. Yeah. It's like, it's just bullshit. <laughs> like this, there's a moment where I'm like, come on movie. Like this is, this is the, when the movie has, is, is reaching its twiest crescendo of characters right. where I think I, I, you know, when they come down the rabbit hole, I think, oh boy, it's a 3d showcase movie. And we get, yes. to, we get into this point with the, with a caterpillar and we're about to get to the red queen, which is the peak of twee Burtonism. And, um, so my rage is building at this point, I yes. guess is what I'm saying. But the, 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 the scroll, and as if it wasn't obvious enough at this point that the whole movie is a foregone conclusion, we're going yeah. to have a prop that makes it completely yes. clear. And the whole time they're trying to impress us, we're supposed to be thinking, wow, it's like Wonderland, but edgy, which I have seen so many Wonderland, <laughs> but edgy. Wonderland started edgy. And yes. That was yes. the whole point. And this is not yes. also not edgy. Not no, <laughs> not really. Pride no. and Prejudice and Zombies is way more interesting than saying, what if I took something that was weird and made it a little weirder? <laughs> yeah, this is where we note that the images on the oraculum are very similar to the original illustrations from the books, which is a nice touch, I think, although it is obviously fan service thrown out there to maybe keep the hordes at bay. <laughs> So uh, after we're we're after Alice is told that she's not the real Alice and everyone is disappointed, they are chased by a giant monster, which is apparently the Bandersnatch, also from the Jabberwocky, mm-hmm. uh, and a bunch of. He doesn't look uh, frumious at all, though. No. Oh, I should point out that the 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 reason we see the oraculum is to see the Frabjous Day, which is what's supposed to happen, where yeah. Alice fights the Jabberwock, and the power that is currently vested in the Red Queen is given back to the rightful ruler yeah. of Underland, the White Queen. That's your prophecy. There's your prophecy. Just make a movie out of Jabberwocky if what you want so bad is a mm-hmm. fight scene. Yeah, but also get the name right. <laughs> yeah, This movie has a clock in its head, and right here it says... We need an action scene. So, oh, here's a monster. Run. Yeah. So the Bandersnatch chases them and gets his eye gouged out, which is, as mentioned, a recurring theme for some reason. Uh, the various members of their party are either captured or scattered. Uh, all that's left are Alice and Tweedledee and Tweedledum. And here we meet the the man behind all of this endless, boring action. Tim Burton. Crispin Glover as the knave of hearts. <laughs> He also has some sort of name, Stain von Rickelbacken or something. Yeah. Uh, and yes, his animation is very weird and jerky and and looks quite bad. And he's got an eye patch and a scar and he's Crispin Glover. So I think we're supposed to like this guy. Well, he's certainly the prettiest I've seen him in a movie in a long time. And he's Crispin Glovering, as he does. <laughs> <laughs> there really isn't much difference between this and any other performance you've seen. And let's see. I believe we now meet the Red Queen. I love her. I kind of do, too. I like the performance. It it reminds me a lot of Miranda Richardson as Queen Elizabeth in Blackadder. Like, she's just shouting everything, but it's entertaining to me. Yeah, she's the, the epitome of the, the passion and fury of the Queen of Hearts. 
back when Lewis Carroll was writing this stuff. You know, he had, you know, the Queen of Hearts was just unbridled emotion. And then the Red Queen in look through the looking glass was supposed to be, you know, calm, collected um, and your governess. Um, but this one's called the Red Queen. Yeah, you know, she's the queen of hearts. Wonderland is all about cards, but Looking Glass is all about chess pieces. Exactly. Yes. So, all right. Here's where Jason says he hates the Red Queen. Well, no, Go. no. Hate her. Go nuts. <laughs> this is uh, this is where I, I lay my uh, cards on the table about Tim Burton, which is that I generally don't like his movies. I do think he has made some good movies. I mostly think that he falls b- back on certain tropes, certain tropes and themes. And I do feel like there are some movies where he's like, yeah, I'm Tim Burton. I'm going to Tim Burton this thing up. And mm-hmm. uh, among the things that drive me nuts about Tim Burton movies, in addition to the super like uh, quirky tweeness of them, is the inevitable appearances of Helena Bonham Carter and Johnny Depp. In They're, they're literally in every movie he makes, right? Right? Mm-hmm. I'm sure they're in well, the one corner of, of like, Party him. Trick and Batman yeah. somewhere. Yes, exactly. So... So I don't, and then Johnny Depp appears here. Boy, does he appear here? Does he have a weird accent, a weird way of talking, a weird, yes, he does. Seems unlikely. I will say this. I think I agree with you. I think Helena Bonham Carter, she looks, the, the effect they do on her head and all that looks really weird. And she is red queening it up. And she is not the problem with this movie. Much to my surprise, um, <laughs> the the Helena Bonham Carter, uh, Johnny Depp axis is probably not the biggest source of problems for this movie. So I, I agree. And like I said, I think she actually, that weird, weird special effect actually looks pretty good when she's not in the shot with someone else. And then right. it gets really strange. Yeah. Any scene with her and Crispin Glover is just awful. Yeah. Or even her and Alice. Because the, the sizes are all mixed up. And yeah. Yeah. Just, yeah. And at one point she says Alice is okay because anyone with a head that big is, was welcome in my court. <laughs> like, uh-huh. Should she mm-hmm. know how weird she looks? I don't think she should. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's kind of her whole character trait, isn't it? I mean, her whole driving emotion is she's, there's supposed to be some sort of weird sort of Willy Wonka-esque uh, backstory here about uh, her being teased by people for her giant head and her parents, you know, not treating her. Yeah, Willy Wonka, that's another Tim Burton movie. No, God. They, they don't even explain it well enough. And then the sequel just throws this entire god-awful makes no sense story the part in. that i i didn't like here was the uh was the dwink, dwink. oh and she she demands the clown later too dwink. for some reason no <laughs> no yeah, yeah the, there's a phrase a hat on a hat where you have one weird thing and then you make it put another weird thing <laughs> in everything in this is like eight weird things all at once it's a whole yeah. stack of hats and who better Nice. But she's so game and her 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 delivery is quite mm-hmm. funny and I, yep. I think she ends up being pretty good. But I mean as crazy things you could add to a character are, she has a big head is pretty pedestrian, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> anyway, uh we snap back to Alice, uh, who is lost in the forest, Tweedledum and Tweedledee having been dispatched by the Jub Jub bird, I think. Yeah. Sure. Uh and we meet the Cheshire cat voiced by Stephen Fry, who it turns out does appear. And also disappear mm-hmm. in this film. Uh, he doesn't seem to have much purpose other than to lead us to the mad tea party where we meet the Hatter who has a Scottish accent when he gets angry, an English accent when he's not, and a slight lisp whenever he remembers to do it. <laughs> yep. And then there's also the March Hare whose sole purpose is to generate 3D effects. Uh-huh. And, okay. uh, I want to say one of my favorite things in this movie, genuinely, is as soon as the evil prince shows up, the March Hare flings a cup at him. Yeah. 
and it kills me. Just the viciousness on his face and the lack of hesitation. Like, oh, there's the bad guy. Fling! Yeah. But it's somewhat and, and of ruined course, by and, how and fake ducks. it looks like when anybody ducks under one of his hurled I items. Yeah. But, but I think that's great. I loved him <laughs> throwing that one cup. Yeah. So I think it is an interesting choice for the movie and for Johnny Depp to portray the famous Mad Hatter of Alice in Wonderland as more of a mild hat enthusiast. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the genius of Johnny Depp, my friend. Is I, you he, know, he, he defies expectations. He, he, he thinks everybody yeah. should have a hat. He thinks hats are really great. Later, he makes a hat. He is just a haberdasher by you know at heart. That's that's his that's his thing. Some call him mad. He just likes hats, people. <laughs> he's mad about hats. He is mad about hats. Well, he's been driven mad by all the tragedy in this backstory. It's been so much tragedy. Mm-hmm. We're about to hear about the tragedy, but uh, first, there's the dramatic reunion in which the Hatter immediately recognizes Alice as the real Alice. Alice insists that it was just a dream. Yes, for quite some time. Uh, <laughs> could it be that she's just trying to get out of this party? <laughs> I, I wish I could find a way. But anyway, obviously, we, we are given the backstory about how the Red Queen has ruined everything uh, and everybody is sad. And that's why we're not just mad now, but also sad. Plot, goals, backstory, all things essential to Alice in Wonderland. Yes. <laughs> and here, I believe, is where we are introduced to the word Futterwacken. God. Futterwacken, you say? Futterwacken. Monty, uh-huh. it's funny because it sounds like he's talking about something naughty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, they found a real unpleasant word, and yet later when we see it, it's not nearly unpleasant enough to encapsulate no. <laughs> the experience. Well, it's pretty unpleasant. <laughs> yeah. I just, hey, look, I am sick of these Futterwhacking hats on this <laughs> Futterwhacking hat. <laughs> I am told by the internet that Futterwhacking could be German for future dance. Mm. If that's true, I do not look forward to the future. Yeah, that was my least favorite Volkswagen ad campaign of all time. Futterwacken. Futterwacken, by the way, is apparently a dance that the Mad Hatter was really good at, and he used to do back in happier times before the Red Queen took over. Steve, I feel like you're just reading the the, the right definition in low definition just then. I really should have actually... stored this up and saved it for a low definition word, because... Uh, anyway, yeah, the whole purpose of it is it's supposed to sound like something nasty. Yeah. And <laughs> and then he breaks off the Twinkle Twinkle Little Bat song mm-hmm. because this movie knows we recognize it, but this movie doesn't understand the idea that Alice is in a world where all the poetry she knows is a little bit wrong. Yep. Martin Gardner's annotated Alice people. It's really good. So the knave and a dog whose family is being held captive by the Red Queen <sighs> appear on the scene. Talking dog. Yes, Bayard, the talking dog. And um, yeah, you, you probably remember talk. him from the book or the previous Alice yep. in Wonderland uh, film. Anyway, um, they shrink Alice down and hide her in a teapot. Worst effects in the movie for me right here when it's Giant Hatter and Tiny Alice. Uh, Ray Harryhausen would not put up with this. <laughs> It turns out that the dog is on their side, sort of, because uh, the Hatter recites down with the bloody big head, and the dog takes off in the other direction. Which is more egregious as sedition, suggesting down with the queen or mentioning her big head? Which is worse, I think. Mm, I, I think know. the big head. It's like in The Wizard of Id. You can say anything about the king, but not the king is a fink. All right. So so you could say death <laughs> to the queen, and that would be okay. But she, yeah, she understands but, that. But hooray for the big head. Bad. 
bad. Right. Okay. Yep. And so, um, yeah, there's an endless scene about how Alice has lost something from the way she was before. This goes on for quite some time. Finally, they decide to go see the White Queen. And so Alice rides on the Hatter's hat for about 10 feet until there is a flashback that the Hatter has <laughs> about the horrors visited upon them by the Red Queen. Oh, boy. In which the Jabberwocky burns uh, a village. It's all very serious and dark. Everything was great. I mean, there was uh, there was a band of jugglers, and the Hatter was there with a hat, and he was clapping and smiling. <laughs> yep. And then the Jabberwocky came and shot the lightning. I hate it when the Futterwack and Jabberwocky comes. It's the worst. (laughs) By this point, I had given up and was reading the trivia on IMDb. And I wrote down in my notes, quote, Tim Burton and Johnny Depp worked hard to give the Mad Hatter more depth and presence than in past portrayals. I think they did a bad job. I, <laughs> I prefer Ed Wynn shouting funny things and then getting off the screen to this nonsense. Yeah. I am with you, Monty. This is also where my notes get a little bit scant because I, I, I think <laughs> the appearance of Johnny Depp broke me a little bit because it's like, oh boy, here we go. It's a zany performance about a hat man. But it was the, I think the flashback to the Jabberwocky. That was this. That was, yeah. You know it was good because his fright wig was was down and he looked more like Doug Henning mm-hmm. unlike now where his hair kind of sticks up a little bit well, you gotta in, in the dark hat. times you gotta wear a hat <laughs> he does wear a hat mm-hmm. anyway <laughs> the dog turns up again apparently he was only partly on their side because he leads them right to the hatter the hatter tosses Alice across a river on his hat and the hatter gets captured uh, she takes a nap under the hat for no apparent reason it's nighttime. she's gotta hide from all the Things that are bigger than her. I kind of like that. Although when you're so small that you fit in a hat, my thought was she's sleeping on the ground there. There's going to be bugs, right? Like you're going to get eaten by mm-hmm. a bug if you're laying on the yeah. grass and yeah. or a tiny person under a hat. Yeah, get in the hat. Get yeah, on some the hat. Of those, some of those yeah. bread and butterflies or something could come and we could have yeah. a... Yeah, slide yeah. into the hat band or something so get, get to get a little protection. You never know what a hook of smoking caterpillar is going to do to you while you sleep on the grass yeah. when you're tiny <laughs> you in watch Underland. Out. As the saying goes. So the dog turns up again... And he wants to take Alice to the White Queen, as is her destiny. But Alice, badass that she is, insists instead on the dog taking her to the Red Queen, even though that's not the plan. (sighs) So anyway, he does. We get to the Red Queen's castle, and Alice makes her way across the one bit that I do like here, which is where she has to cross the moat on all of the floating severed heads of the Red Queen's victims, (laughs) although they've been turned to stone for no apparent reason. So this is Alice in Wonderland. Remember the kid's story? It's fun. It's whimsy. (laughs) She gets into the castle, and there's a rehash of the scene where the queen is playing croquet with a bird and a hedgehog. Mm-hmm. Alice yeah. releases the hedgehog and meets the white rabbit again who gives her some cake and she gets really big. Really, really big. That's... She eats too much. The white rabbit tells her she's yeah. eating too much Don't of the Don't eat cake. it all. <laughs> Don't eat all that and cake. So she get, And this is where we get, she, she gets really big and they see her and she's naked now because she's burst out of all of her clothes, but she's like behind plants or something. And, and the, yeah. white, the, the red queen gives the line that I did like, which yes. is the, to, to Use the curtains if you must, but clothe this enormous, enormous girl. girl. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty good. Yeah. So yes, now she's in the court of the red queen and she's claiming to be um from umbrage. Yes, that's right. It's clever wordplay, you see. How, where do they come up with these things? And this is where I really started to miss the cool 
first 10 minutes Alice who would challenge things and was smart, but no. no she just kind of goes along with the Red Queen, I guess maybe because she's concerned that she's going to get found out and she's in trouble, but she's just kind of going to play for time and, and be she's, the she's Red She's trying Queen's to rescue the Hatter buddy. here, so yeah. I mean, you know, getting captured isn't going to help anybody. So she hangs out with the Red Queen for a bit. Well, the Red Queen, Red Queen brings in her fat boys, Tweedledee and Tweedledum, whom she thinks are <laughs> hilarious. They somehow don't reveal her true identity. And then she brings in the Hatter, who is wearing chains, and he flatters her about her big head and tells her how excited he would be to hat her. And so she releases him. Because mm-hmm. he's going to make her a hat. That's his move. I think that's really like literally the only move the Mad Hatter has is, <laughs> yes. I could make you a hat. Well, he's tried being mad. Now it's time for option B. <laughs> yep. Hatting. It totally works, though. And he throws in that sibling rivalry. I, I had to work with the White Queen and like, her head's so tiny. Her head is small, not like your gigantic bulbous That's, globe. that's his, yeah, uh, his globe. sales technique. Yeah. <laughs> right. It works. I would have liked it better if no one had ever mentioned her giant head. No one mentions how weird everyone else looks. Like, <laughs> no one looks at the Mad Hatter and says, you are dressed and acting like a crazy, crazy idiot right now. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we meet the White Queen uh, as the dog reports the news of Alice to her, and she's very excited because, in fact, it was in Alice's destiny to go get the Vorpal Sword, which is at the right the Red Queen's domicile. So, <laughs> so now we described we've got we've got uh, Matt Lucas as a anthropomorphic egg and Kristen Glover as a Crispin Glover head on a weird herky jerky body. We've got big headed <laughs> Helena Bonham Carter. We got Johnny Depp in as many hats. And uh and then there's Alice. But now we have the White Queen. Played by Anne Hathaway. <laughs> uh but in this in this fantasy Wonderland, it's Anne Hathaway from movies. <laughs> well wait, she does have a personality trait, which is that she sachets. Yes, and she wears white uh-huh. Yeah. And she's very pretty, but she could go psycho on you any minute. <laughs> I actually enjoy her performance here, too. It's it's kind of fun, if a bit one note. Mm-hmm. She seems to enjoy sashaying around and doing the whole, you know, princess routine. And there is there's <laughs> kind of a little bit of, a, of an air of something disturbing bubbling under the surface <laughs> as she's making a potion with buttered fingers and smelling them. And She's making the... Pilsinger, whatever, the shrinking potion. Pishalver. Is this a callback to the Princess Diaries? That's my question. (laughs) I don't know, but we don't have very long to think about it because now we're back to the Red Queen and there's a scene where Alice is watching the Hatter who is happy to be back at his work. But Alice Mm -hmm. foolishly points out to the crazy person that it's too bad that he's making these hats for a terrible person and he has a freak out, as he often does, and turns briefly Scottish. Complete with the dark makeup. Briefly Scottish is the name of, um, I don't know, my Simply Red cover band, let's say. (laughs) My line of rough-hewn underwear. (laughs) Now, is that popular? It doesn't seem like it would be. It's it's underwear, but made out of peat. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. But it's aged 15 years before it's sold. Aye, laddie. I would like something to explain the smell. Mm -hmm. Some people love it. Some people hate it. I happen to love it. Anyway, there's a discussion with the Red Queen and the Knave about whether it's better to be feared than loved. That goes nowhere. Yeah. Okay. So hold on. <laughs> okay. I, this, this is my moment where I said, oh, so now just like we're going to spice up Alice in Wonderland with a little bit of Machiavelli. Is that what's That's happening right. right now? 
Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. we look down and see the king's head among, in the moat with everybody else's. So sure. yeah. If I could quote the internet, which I was flagrantly reading at this point. <laughs> so with this, he attempted to create a framework, an emotional grounding, which he felt he, he never really had seen in any version before. So this is uh, Tim Burton raising the stakes on the story. That that Wikipedia edit made by Burton T. <laughs> I'm going to consider this part of the Machiavelli cinematic universe. Yeah. <laughs> sure. All right. Um, so Alice finds out that uh, she needs to get the Vorpal Sword, so she seeks out the rabbit who knows where it is. And it turns out it's behind the Bandersnatch, where you always hide your Vorpal Sword. <laughs> yeah. One-eyed uh, Bandersnatch, because it uh, lost right. an eye. Yeah, the, the Banders- it's in the Bandersnatch house, which is out in the uh-huh. courtyard. Um, so Alice seeks out the Dormouse, who is toting around the Bandersnatch's eye in a sack on her hip. And retrieves the eye and gives it back to the Bandersnatch and then immediately falls asleep in his little house because I guess retrieving the eye really sapped her. They're friends forever now. <laughs> uh, oh, and as she's exploring around, there's a creepy scene where Crispin Glover uh, pushes her up against the wall and tells her he likes largeness, which is really <laughs> disturbing. Yeah. In the uh, second Charlie's Angels movie that Drew Barrymore made, Charlie's Angels Full Throttle, Crispin Glover plays a character who is clearly the villain, because Crispin Glover, but he'll frequently just cut off someone's hair and smell it. And I think that, like this scene, were things Crispin Glover brought to the role. I don't think he thought the camera was rolling at that point. (laughs) So, yeah, Alice is asleep. Um, We cut to the Hatter trying hats on the Queen. (laughs) No one will be seated during the hat fitting Uh, scene. It is exactly a comedy trying on costumes. Thumbs up. Thumbs down. What about this one? And then a lady's nose falls off, which is also hilarious. Because all of the people in her court are wearing prosthetics because that's what you need to get in good with the big head queen. Yeah, apparently. everybody like she's got a big nose and there's like the guy with the big ears. Everybody's got a large, uh, large feature. Faked. Although there is an amusing scene later where the uh, large breasted woman is revealed to actually have large breasts under her prosthetic, <laughs> which amuses me. <laughs> Probably not a whole lot of other people. Those prosthetics do not fall off that easily. They're no. glued on pretty tight. Ah, uh, so Alice wakes up in the Bandersnatch house, and it turns out the Bandersnatch is just a big old softy. You bring back his eye, and he licks your wounds and heals them, and then presents you the key to the Vorpal Sword container. So she opens it up. She gets the Vorpal Sword. It's sort of amusing here that because she's large, the Vorpal Sword looks almost like a little dagger. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it doesn't seem impressive at all the first time we're presented with the Vorpal Sword, which I think is a kind of a funny thing. She's almost captured in the courtyard because they have realized, because, uh, oh, when Crispin Glover was declaring his love of largeness, the lady with big prosthetic ears witnessed it and told the Red Queen, who flew off the handle and decided that Um needed her head removed. So uh, they chase her around for a little while. It looks like she's going to be captured when who turns up but the Bandersnatch, who rides off with her and the Vorpal Sword to meet the White Queen. At some point here, doesn't somebody call her Alice? Is this where they, it's revealed that she's actually Alice? And the jig is yeah, up? the, the doormouse, doormouse yells, up. run Alice at some point. Yeah. And, yeah. Yes. In she's, a very Three's Company-esque contrivance. Now now they know that she's Alice, even though she yes. denies that she's Alice because uh, it was just a dream. Not that it makes a lick of difference because they were going to chase her down and execute her anyway. Mm-hmm. But I mean, she, she rate, stole, stole the property. <laughs> she gets away and heads to the White Queen, but the Hatter is left behind to be executed along with the Dormouse. Sweet. 
But wait, it turns out that the Cheshire Cat has a heretofore unrevealed and hereafter never explained power. (laughs) (laughs) He can make himself look exactly like the Mad Hatter if he wears his hat. I don't know why or what the hell is going on. I I want to hijack the show right now because this is the perfect time (laughs) to tell a story about the iOS game that came out in conjunction with this movie. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I'll allow it. The game was really good. It cost me $4.99, which I was happy to pay. And it was kind of a uh, puzzle game where you would eventually bring in your friends like the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat and the March Hare. And they each had superpowers. Uh, The Mad Hatter would freeze time so you could go under this moving thing and one character could make you teleport. So it it was like you get this power to get past this level, this power to get past this level, and then you're in a maze and you have to find the Bandersnatch and get the sword. And it was pretty fun. What was weird about this game, though, is that somebody making it was very ambitious. So they also put a bunch of riddles throughout the whole game. You had to find the riddle and then type in the answer. And if you got it, you got a little unlock image. And that wasn't enough for them. So they also had riddles on a main menu where in order to answer them, you had to take a picture. So there was a question and the answer would end up being red. So you had to take a picture of something red and import it into the app. And the app would go, you're right. And then they would unlock another little thing like, here's your Pishalver. <laughs> here's your Futterwack and Pishalver. <laughs> that wasn't enough for them either. They also had a feature where you had to check in on specific days, like the anniversary of the publication of the original book or the anniversary of the Mad Tea Party at Disneyland being opened. So there oh my were th- God. In order to get those three, you had to keep track of what day it was and open the app and check in on those days. But that wasn't (laughs) enough for them either because they wanted to use every feature of the iPhone. So they also had a thing where you had to use the GPS and check in at Disneyland at the Mad Tea Party. (laughs) Oh, my God. And also at the other four Disney parks throughout the world. What? So in order to completely unlock everything in this four ninety nine iPhone game, you had to go to Anaheim and Orlando and Japan and Paris. <laughs> Did you do it? I tried so hard, Steve. <laughs> I got three of them. I got Japan, I got Anaheim, and I got Orlando. I was hoping to eventually get Paris and I wherever I think there's one in China or something, Shanghai. Unfortunately, the most recent iOS update... Oh, no. (laughs) This is a tragic tale. You should have told me earlier. It turns out they are not updating this stupid movie tie-in game to keep up with iOS updates. It's only been since 2010. (laughs) (laughs) So I never completely unlocked everything in that game, but I put so much effort into it. it it must be like a part of you is missing like you've lost your muchness even though i'm pretty mad at this movie i have very fond memories of it just because of this iphone game okay and in that iphone game the cheshire cat's ability was very useful you are not getting past the enchanted forest without it and was that power to look like the hatter and then disappear no oh I think he was the one that could walk you through mirrors. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, in this case, the Cheshire Cat 
he's wearing the Mad Hatter's hat and he's looking exactly like the Mad Hatter and he presents himself for execution. And just as the axe is about to fall, poof, he disappears. And the hat drifts up to where the Red Queen is at and where it turns out the real Mad Hatter is. And the Mad Hatter foments a riot by pointing out that everyone around the Red Queen is wearing a prosthetic and they don't really like her and they aren't really like her. And as everyone fights and the Jub-Jub bird is summoned, uh, the Hatter and the Dormouse and everybody runs off to join <laughs> Alice with the White Queen. It's a pretty typical um, revolution. Yeah, it's kind of how it all works. Mm -hmm. So before they arrive at the White Queen's castle, there is yet another endless discussion between the White Queen and Alice, uh, where Alice is convinced this is a dream and the White Queen needs a champion to fight the Jabberwocky. And will Alice step up and be the champion? I don't know. Will she? The suspense is killing me. <laughs> it would be neat if she wasn't. Is it the caterpillar who finally drops the knowledge? Because we, we get right here. We finally, she goes, oh, it wasn't a dream. I yeah, really yeah. was somewhere here before. And everybody who's watching goes, yes. Yes, yeah, it's, it's mm -hmm. right in this segment somewhere. Yeah. I think the Hatter and the dog's family and everybody turn up first. But... <sighs> That's right, Christopher Robin. Winnie the Pooh was real all along. <gasps> and the, the uh, six impossible things before breakfast thing, you know, again, is brought up here as this, as a catchphrase, essentially, and then yeah. used uh, when she's Remember that? It was so awesome before. When her father said it. So the White Queen uh, announces that uh, somebody is wanting to talk to Alice, so she comes and finds Absalom, who is rapidly being encompassed by a chrysalis. Uh, he is going to transform, but he, she, they have the discussion again where we don't know if she's the real Alice, but she is the real Alice and she's the, getting there. So, well, there's some sort of a turning point here, but it's not clear at all to me what it is because all of a sudden he says, oh, there you are, the real Alice, but she hasn't really done anything to change mm. since. No, she, she eats the imaginary food or something. It's fine. It's also, I, I just want to point out the moment that Absalom reveals that he's he's going into his chrysalis and all that. It's a huge setup, right? Because then, obviously, later in the movie, he's going to emerge and it's going right. to be a big deal, right? It's going to be so cool. Yeah, that never happens. No, it doesn't. Nope. Butterfly lands on her shoulder. <laughs> yeah. But uh, we are presented with some exciting flashbacks about the first time Alice was there when she was a little girl in a scene that acts like this is the biggest reveal ever and not something that was patently obvious five minutes into the freaking movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Hats off. haha. -ha. Hats off to Danny Elfman for scoring the hell out of this thing like it's just an amazing bit of reveal. Yeah. Yeah, but hats off might be not be the best it's way to put off. this because no, you want to keep her. that flutterwhacking hat. Keep the flutterwhacking hats on you, flutterwhacking hat man. Okay. That's, by the way, yet another plot line that goes nowhere is that the Mad Hatter's hat is apparently incredibly important to him. And there's these extended scenes of Alice carefully retrieving it from wherever it is and bringing it back to him. And and the, and the Cheshire cat lusting for it. He is he is a a mentally disturbed hat enthusiast obsessed with his hat it's very important to him well he never seems to care whether he has it or not though alice brings it back to him and, and she just like sets it on the bench and we had to watch her go search for it just five minutes earlier he could make a new one also it turns out he can throw <laughs> knives 20 feet with pinpoint accuracy yeah that's weird he likes that hat because it's the one he had on when he was clapping that one time 
It's got a price on it. If he likes it so much, why is it for sale? <laughs> so anyway, it's morning. It is the Frabjus Day. Um, oh, Frabjus Day. Oh, Frabjus Day. Kalu Kalei. Yeah. Alice is horrified at the idea of being the champion, and we're certain that she's not going to turn up. <laughs> and everybody else presents themselves as potential champions. But look, the oraculum clearly shows Alice, although it's actually uh, just a, a, a facsimile of the original illustration where it was supposed to be a boy, and the boy happened to have long, curly hair. But anyway, Alice turns up. Can you believe it? She shows up and she's wearing the armor and she's got the Vorpal Sword and she's riding the Bandersnatch. And so she is ready to be the White Queen's champion. And at last we get what Alice in Wonderland has always been asking for, which is an enormous fight scene. Mm-hmm. Yep. Just the On most top of that chessboard. Gratuitous, yep. boring. Sorry, oh, go ahead. God, it is. Yeah. It re- yeah. I mean, this is this is the kind of thing when people say that they don't like like special effects in movies or 3D or anything like that. This is what they're actually talking about is just, uh, you know, obligatory fighting Place because to the basically the convention of the format of film in this era suggests you need to have that big obligatory CGI enhanced fight yeah. scene. It's not the... It's not the technical part that's the fault here. It's the choice that the directors and the writers make of forcing us to watch one of these in this moment in a movie that does not need it, uh, but has been structured to build to this moment of uh, the big uh, sword fight with the yeah with the various armies that come in later and the monster and the whole thing. Yeah. And to be fair, neither of the original books has anything approaching a climax. They both just kind of end with her waking up and saying, well, that was weird. (laughs) But Yeah, if they had bothered to lay the important groundwork of making us give a crap about anything going on here, then maybe this fight scene might might have some heft to it. (laughs) But the problem is they didn't. And so we don't give a rat's ass. And as a result, we're just looking at spectacle. And maybe this in 2010 was an impressive spectacle but at some point with cgi your your tech is not going to be state-of-the-art anymore and people watching it nine years later say are going to look at it and go wow that doesn't look very good and so it doesn't even have that going for it anymore so it's just five minutes of the two factions you know whacking each other on a big chessboard, and out comes the jabberwock and alice fights it and wins and it all looks super fake and nobody cares and we've just wasted our time but now that we've won <laughs> do we get any sort of any any sort of celebration steve any sort um, of dr- dr- exciting heavily foreshadowed uh any big uh, any big moments? Well, the Red Queen and the Knave are banished. Is that what you mean? No, I'm, I'm thinking more sort no, of... No, he's thinking about that really, really out of place bass line. <laughs> I oh, am asking... Oh, wait a minute. It's the Futterwhacken. That's <laughs> Futterwhacken, Steve. We finally got the Futterwhacken, which we've yes. all been so excited about. First, the Mad Hatter drops his catchphrase, Kalu Kalei, which we've just been introduced to, mm-hmm. assuming we haven't read any of the books or the poem. And then we get to see the Hatter Futterwhacken, which is just awful. <laughs> it's, a bit, it's, it's weird because... They actually, for this scene, I, I, there, there are special features for this thing, and one of the special features is just called Futterwhacken. <laughs> and they actually went out and hired a guy who does some really impressive dance moves where it looks like his body is moving in directions that it shouldn't. 
And that's basically what we watch here. But because the entire movie up till this point has been a CGI fest, and because they couldn't resist animating his head so it spins around 360 degrees while he's dancing, you just assume the whole thing is fake. And he's got the grossest smile on his face, and everyone else is just watching in glee. like And clapping and smiling. Everybody in Wonderland loves watching this thing happen. With the most anachronistic music ever. Oh my God, I wanted to rip my eardrums out. <laughs> so it's like, bad. <laughs> it's like, no, that, that's, that's Futterwack and Two Electric Boogaloo. No. But again, Elfman is, is capturing the feeling of the scene to a T there, oh, I have God. to say. The confidence with which this movie presents the Futterwacken as something you're going to love. You're going to adore it. Everybody's uh, going to be walking out of the theater saying Futterwacken, Futterwacken, Futterwacken. Close. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, again, you know, it's, it's, it's cool dance moves with, I think, the, the Johnny Depp head superimposed over the top and then it spins around and it's unclear what the purpose of this whole thing was, but it's... It's really sad and makes me want to weep a little bit. So after that exciting moment, we have the big emotional scene where Alice decides she doesn't want to stay in Underland. Wrong now, wrong in Oz, always wrong. Stay in the crazy land. She gets a vial of blood. That's cool. But she's got important questions she needs to answer when she gets home. So yes, she drinks the purplish Jabberwocky blood. And then we have a big emotional, well, would-be emotional scene of Alice saying goodbye to the Hatter, which lands with a dull thud. Mm-hmm. Bye. I hope you keep your hat. But you won't remember me. Well, yeah, nobody will. <laughs> I'll remember you every time I see somebody with a hat, sir. Every time. <laughs> every hat I every see. Every hat will remind me of you. <laughs> She's from 19th century England. There are guys in hats all over the place. It's That's lousy right. with them. She's going to remember him pretty much every day, multiple times. So if she wasn't crazy before, she'll go crazy now. So the hatter fades out. And his eye fades into the rabbit hole, and Alice climbs out of it. Hooray! Maybe another eye-gouging thing. I don't know. Um, but she gives each of the stuffed shirts their comeuppance in turn and talks to the friend of the family who now owns the company, her father having died previously, which we didn't mention, but it really doesn't turn out to be all that important. Uh, she takes an apprenticeship with her father's company, She's come up with an even crazier idea than having a trading post in a far-flung locale. A trading post in an even farther-flung locale. Mm -hmm. Which people have been going to all along for centuries. Yes. So she opens trade with China and brings opium to England. Good job, Alice. (laughs) Great happy ending. Well, it was for the author of this book, as it turns out. So (laughs) maybe it is a tie-in of some kind. And also for Johnny Depp. Oh, did I say that out loud? Oh. (sighs) Oh, boy. So she sails away on a ship called The Wonder. Corporate synergy, everybody. Does that make From Hell a sequel to this? Because he's smoking opium when we first see him in that. Oh, wow. As long as he's wearing a hat. If you see Johnny Depp in a hat, he's the Mad Hatter. Yes. And (laughs) as she sails off on the wonder, you know, adventure in her eyes, she utters those fantastic final words of this movie that you're going to remember for the rest of your life. Hello, Absalom. And we fade out. I faded out way before that. (laughs) One question, Steve. Yes? Why is a raven like a writing desk? Uh, (laughs) Ah. 
<laughs> it's like yes. they d- did a family feud style survey. And whatever the top eight answers were for name something you remember for Alice in Wonderland, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, make sure they're in the movie somewhere. That somebody's got to say that at least four times. Yeah, I remember people's eyes getting poked out. Can we do? That's not in the. Well, okay, we'll put it in. I'm certain that happened. (laughs) Tim said, "Poke out eyes." (laughs) I will say that the first part of the credits are pretty neat to look at. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we get the regular credits, and we get to hear the version of the Alice theme with vocals, which is kind of neat, I think. Mm-hmm. And then it ends, and uh, we're left with a feeling of incredible emptiness. You're skipping one of the most important parts, which is when somebody we know is in the credits. <laughs> oh, yeah, that does happen, doesn't it? Uh-huh. Should we mention that? Are we putting we... him on blast? <laughs> <laughs> we normally only blame people we don't know for these movies. Yeah. What I want to say is that I think the lighting and compositing of whatever Joe Steele worked on, yep. I'm sure it was good. I'm certain it was. Yep. Absolutely. I hope you worked on the hat. <laughs> Mr. Depp's hats provided by Sunny Picture Image Works. I mean, there are there are visual things in this movie that are very, very cool. There are. There are. It won two Oscars, people. It won two Oscars. It did. For technical categories that are yeah. not related to the quality of the film. Before we start being too nice about the 3D or special effects in this movie, it came out the same year as How to Train Your Dragon, Iron Man 2, the first Harry Potter movie, Toy Story 3, and Inception. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's mm. not it's it's not good. It, it is and and <laughs> I didn't realize, you know, you never realize when you're living through it, but that was the era where we really were living through Hollywood thinking the solution to getting people to come to the movies was to make these 3D spectacles. And the problem is um, well, they were wrong and people hate 3D. And my my local movie theater now has like the obligatory 3D showing at a not very good time. And every other showing is 2D because they've realized nobody was going to the 3D showing. But back in 2010, they thought this was the solution. And there are many points in this movie where it feels more like I'm watching the footage that was meant to be used in a motion control ride than a movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's just that that period. There are good movies from that period. There are good there are movies with good special effects from that period, but very clearly the mandate from Disney to Tim Burton for this movie was create a 3D spectacle and he by gum he did it. <laughs> you know, that's a good point. Um I believe your general thesis is that Tim Burton is better when he has to put up with a lot of uh studio meddling. Yes. So he's less Tim Burton y. But some of the worst parts of this movie are like the fall down the rabbit hole. Uh-huh. And surely that was just a studio note saying, make this longer and put more stuff in it. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel like there's a lot of clearly Disney fied stuff that Tim Burton probably was not responsible for here. So I think it's not so much that he he's better when he's forced to sort of share with a, a co-conspirator as when like the two are forced to work together. Because here it seems like there's Burton stuff, there's Disney stuff. They were slapped together kind of haphazardly. I also want to say I feel like this is Tim Burton basically. This is his investment to get paid a lot of money so that he can go off and make another movie that he actually wants to make. And he he's like, all right, I'm just going to use my kid's this is my kid's movie. I'm going to use my kid's movie part of my brain. And he has his own definition, because he's Tim Burton, of what a kid's movie is. And that's what we got here. And, uh, you know, it, it's, you know, it's not it's not great. That's <laughs> what I'm saying. It's, it's not that there's anything horribly wrong with it. It's that there's nothing right with it. 
Yeah. Apart from the Danny Elfman score, which is pretty and the, good. And the first, whatever, 10 minutes when it's a, when it's like a, a, a costume drama. Yeah. Which I would say is also something wrong with it because it sets you up for a much better movie than you end up getting and disappoints you. Uh, and just the flash of, you know, once in a while that, you know, funny line or great line that actually yeah, lands. There are. And it is not completely it is not like a desert devoid of interesting things. There are interesting things to look at mixed in with the mess of things that are not interesting. And there are funny bits that mm -hmm. uh, that I, I liked, but they're not a lot of them. They're not enough oh, of God. them. I was just so bored throughout much of this movie. I mean, it's only an hour and 40 minutes and it felt endless because all of these long, you know, there, there were the little shining, you know, occasional bits of uh, Helena Bonham Carter, you know, mm -hmm. vamping it up and having fun with a good line from time to time. But then there are these inter interminable chase scenes mm -hmm. where there's just no reason for it and i'm just watching this crap go on on the screen and i'm you know keeping an eye on my watch with the other eye because i'm hoping it will end soon mm -hmm. it's just endless and and dull yeah and i think that's almost worse than being bad yeah i i think you're right i think it's um it, it's it's nonsensical in a lot of ways and it makes decisions that are i mean the the if i had to really knock tim burton for anything in particular from this movie, and I guess I could knock Linda Wolverton too, but and who knows who's really to blame? Maybe it's the executives, but it's the it's the contempt for the source material and the yeah. idea that yeah. what like Monty said, if you take the lines that people remember and you throw them in as catchphrases and the general shape of it so that people are like, well, you know, yeah, there was a caterpillar and there was a Cheshire cat and all of that, then you can make a largely generic um, fantasy uh, computer effects movie and um, make a billion dollars. And you know what? That's what they did. And they made a billion dollars. So I guess what do we know? But um, that that's the part yeah. that really bugs me is the idea is like there's there's no care at all for like anybody. This is a beloved childhood, you know, beloved children's literature, beloved animated movie from Disney. And and then, you know, whoever, Tim Burton, Linda Wolverton, whoever rolls in and is like, yeah, this is garbage. I can do better. And and but we'll put in some references and some fan service and and they don't do better. That's the thing is it's this arrogance that we can do better. But what they give us is just, you know, it's it's flavorless, uh, textureless, other than like some of the pretty, you know, costumes and stuff. It's just kind of empty. And the, and it and that. I would lay most of that on the foot of the of the story structure because this is a this is a super generic plot that has been sort of like um dressed up in Alice garb, Alice like trinkets, but in the end it ends in a big CGI fight with a monster because that's how all these movies end. I know it made a billion dollars, but I don't think anybody loved this movie whereas the previous cartoon Alice that Disney made still has like two rides at Disneyland. It still has that Alice and Mad Hatter walking around the park. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. the the sequel didn't do well. I mean, it still made like $300 million, <laughs> but like in the grand scheme of things, Chumps. In, in the grand scheme of things, million. it made a lot less. And I think that that is at least partially because 
uh, people saw this movie <laughs> and they're like yeah and, and also we talk about a billion dollars but again this is the height of the 3d thing this is oh well if you're gonna see it see it in 3d and instantly the ticket price is double so mm-hmm. you know it, it did as many people see it as you would think from the billion dollar uh amount of gross maybe not and and yeah i i i can't imagine that somebody saw this movie and walked out of it satisfied honestly i can't imagine that the audiences that this was a beloved movie after people watched it i think people went in on the branding uh and the 3dness of it and then this is what they got well i don't know there were people that went to see the phantom menace and then watched it two more times that that's, weekend that's before <laughs> they came to terms with what they really watched so I went and saw Alice in Wonderland in the theater because I am a Lewis Carroll fangirl. Um, and I definitely did not like, you know, wait on pins and needles to get the DVD or um, anything like that, which I usually do with films that I love. Um, and I'm fairly certain I did not go for 3D because I hate watching 3D anything. I can't even say that as a as a Lewis Carroll fan that I was feeling pandered to. It's like it was more like check the boxes than anything right. else. No, I think that's exactly right, which is it's not it's not even pandering. It's because pandering and fan service and fan fiction, I think, imply a deep love of the material that makes yeah. you want to call out all those references and all the yeah. fan debates about what this really means and all of that. This is like somebody and it's like like I said about the Wikipedia page, it's somebody who doesn't like the material was given a checklist to direct for somebody who I think did love it. I think Linda Wolverton appreciated it. She has developed her thing of um, interpreting, remaking, and updating fairy tales from Beauty and the Beast to this one to Maleficent. You know, she she is that's part of, that's part of her brand. So I think that she at least enjoyed and appreciated a lot of what she wanted to try and do with the script. And no, then you hand it over to Tim Burton and it just, you know, starts falling apart from there. To quote a very smart man, Here's Baru. You guys like Baru. (sighs) (sighs) (laughs) (laughs) It's the post-Burton sigh. You know, I get why people like Tim Burton, and I like I get it. He he has, and this was more true earlier in his career because in his later career, there are definitely the movies that I feel like are the cash grab movies for him, and I feel like this is actually kind of that because it's his. I'll I'll. I'll slum and do these, you know, movies for kids because they're going to pay me a huge amount of money and then I can go make Dark Shadows or whatever, which, you know, is 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 I would say much more of in his wheelhouse than this or Dumbo, let's say. But, you know, I'm not a fan, but I get why people are a fan of his twee and kind of like all, like gothic horror-esque and you know, there's a Tim Burton kind of vibe and it doesn't work for me, but I get, I get it. Uh, here, honestly, it, it does feel like he's slumming it and doing a cash grab and, um, and not being all he can be. I can't believe I'm saying that, but like Mm -hmm. this movie isn't that Tim Burton-y. And in fact, when, when you look at Helen Bonham Carter and her big head and Johnny Depp and his weird accents, and you kind of almost want to hold on to them as like, it's something to watch or to listen to while you're watching this movie. Um, mm. I, it makes me very uncomfortable to think that like, oh, well, Johnny Depp's going to mumble through this scene. At least that's something I can watch. Because yeah. I'm not a big fan of that, but at least that is texture and character. Yeah. At least Johnny Depp is doing something. Yeah. yeah. Like he yeah, shows up with an idea. 
it's mm-hmm. weird to say that if this had been more Tim Burton-y and more twee, it actually might have been a better movie because... I think it would have. Th- I think this is... That's bizarre. I think this is the case where it's been flattened out a little bit too much. And whether that's maybe his uh, less comfort with uh, doing something with this many special effects, I don't know. Or whether I think it's, it's just he doesn't care as much. Or whether this, he just doesn't care and this, this is just purely a... a, 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 a simplified watered down cash grab for him i don't know but uh as it is i am completely baffled this is my point really about this whole thing is i i'm completely baffled by the fact that this movie made as much money as it did it's rotten tomatoes rating is in the 50s so it's like people gave it positive reviews i've got to imagine that those reviewers would take it back now and would also (laughs) were probably thinking about this exciting new era of 3d film and that um you know watching it on my tv last night um no the bigger the bigger chunk was international oh well like the international yeah it's like you know it made a 300 odd you know thousand or million whatever in the u.s and then um the greater chunk of it two-thirds of it came from international market all right where maybe they alice in wonderland isn't as much of a touchstone and it's just a big 3d spectacle well, that's the thing. point that's the weird thing like yeah. if you love the book the like i do then mm-hmm. the movie feels weird and like it's not doing anything right but if yeah. you don't love the book then why did that guy just say kalu Calais? Yeah. and why does he keep talking about ravens and writing desks <laughs> yeah i don't know just really loves Edgar Allan poe i guess I, it, it's got that progression of you know here's the girl going through the weird land and hey here's a fight scene at the end <laughs> how is a raven like a writing desk is from the source material it is yes. it, it is but he says it like three times and just to remind people this is from a book <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think I was here. It was just a dream. We beat this movie to death. So there. But we did it in 3D. And that's the most important thing. And that's why this episode yeah. costs twice <laughs> as much as your normal incomparable episode. Mm-hmm. It's true. It's true. Two times zero. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Full refund if you aren't satisfied. <laughs> All right. Well, we're closing the book on uh, Alice in Wonderland. And although Moises Chuyan keeps telling us we should do an episode about the sequel. Oh, God. No. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna happen dude no. but uh but this has been a delightful rocket surgery um honestly this movie was not as bad as i feared just because i feared the worst um also there's a rocket surgery thing where i watch a movie thinking oh no what if it's actually good and about 20 minutes and i was like nope. oh whew, what a relief it's not it's not <laughs> <laughs> so that's always fun uh i would like to thank my guests for going on this journey through the looking glass no down the rabbit hole uh mm-hmm. with me uh nobody got stabbed in the eye so that's good monty ashley thank you uh i was also going to do some sort of eye gouging reference here <laughs> ab- about how i didn't like looking at the movie the classic eye good. gouge everybody's favorite part <laughs> of alice in wonderland shannon sutter thank you very much you're welcome and a raven is like a writing desk because they both produce very few notes that are flat and steve lutz thank you <sighs> jason my Groves are all mimsy right now. <laughs> you can't say that anymore, Steve. Yeah, it's not allowed. Okay. Can I say I'm going to go Fudderlackin? <laughs> yes. That's more like yes. it. That's more okay. like it. Careful of your back. And uh, for everybody else out there, I just want to quote uh, the knave and one of the final things he says in the movie, which is, kill me, please. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. 